humans, leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Thanks so much for dedicating the next half hour of your one precious life to listen to this episode. And I promise you, you will not regret it. My guest in this episode is the wonderful, warm, smart, inspiring Kate Brindley. Now, I started my career in the cultural sector. So in film and music, straight out of college, full of the joys of, um, then I commissioned digital artworks with the BBC and the Arts Council. Um, so that was right at the very beginning of my career. Oh yeah, and actually this has got nothing to do with this, but quick tip, if you wanna know what digital technology is really capable of, put it in the hands of artists. They will bend it, they will break it, they will make it do things you could never even possibly imagine. So that's my tip of the day. So since I started doing this podcast, which is a year ago, guys, it's our, it's our first birthday. Happy birthday to us. Um, I've been asking my cultural industry friends, who are the superstar leaders now in the cultural sector? And literally, it was like tumbleweed. Nobody could point me at anyone they could really even say was remotely imaginable. I'm not sure that's true, by the way. And dear listener, if you can tell me that somebody in the cultural sector is an imaginable leader, I would love to meet them and hear their stories. But then I met Kate. So I've been doing some work with the mayoral combined authority here in my urban country home of uh, South Yorkshire. Uh, she's come as part of that package. And you know, when you meet somebody and you just know when you first meet them that they're absolutely part of your tribe, well, Kate is that. And the story that she told me when we first met filled me with so much respect and awe. I can't even tell you, and I know that you will feel the same, but before I introduce you to Kate, I want to say a massive, massive thanks for all of your feedback. It is really important to me to understand what works for you as my listeners, what works and what doesn't, because you know that I think that everything can be better always. So your feedback helps me make sure I'm giving you the best possible listening experience that I can. And if you do know somebody that you think is an imaginal leader from a big organization that's somehow managing to kind of lead their organization to somewhere better, somewhere more human, please do reach out and suggest a way. Obviously, head over to catskeely.com and sign up to the Humans Leading Humans newsletter, where I'll keep you up to date with all of the trials and the tribulations and the triumphs in the world of Beep and Catsy and the rest of the things that I do, which you probably may feel and find interesting too. Um, so head over to wearebeep.com to find out about the programs that we run to help senior leaders in large organizations be better based on the CREATE framework. 
Or obviously, do you know what? If you want to get in touch with me, mail me. My email is, here you go, it's a little secret just for you. Cats at wearebeep.com. I love to get mails. I really love to get mails. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you. But now, if you're sitting comfortably, get ready for Kate Brindley's stories. Brindley, I am genuinely excited that you've joined me as a guest for Humans Leading Humans. So I always say how I met my, met my guests. So as I just said, I, I've been doing some work with the Mayoral Combined Authority here in South Yorkshire. It's an exciting time after COVID for different bits of the country to start operating in different ways. So that's how I met Kate. And I loved spending time with her and everything that I've seen and every one of the stories that you've told me has made it clear to me that you are an imaginal leader. You are blushing. So before we hear your top three stories, could you tell our listeners, how did you get to here? Yes, and thank you. Uh, meeting you has been an absolute highlight of the last few months, I must say, Katz. It's been an absolute pleasure every time we talk to each other. Um, well, I've spent 30 years in the cultural sector, um, which I feel so blessed um, to have done. And I've worked in lots of senior leadership positions in the cultural sector, but I started my life as a curator uh, and kind of then saw that I wanted to make a difference. And I realized that I had to really be a, in a leadership position to do that. So um, quite a few people gave me a few lucky breaks and I worked really hard as well, which you have to do in the cultural sector, I might add. Um, and yeah, it's brought me here now back to South Yorkshire. I'm a Sheffield girl and I went away to train and to work and I've come back and I'm working for the combined authority on cultural policy and I'm working with the mayor because the mayor is really keen to see culture as part of his agenda so I'm fortunate enough to be able to give something back to my beloved Sheffield and South Yorkshire. And it is pretty amazing isn't it it's listeners I traveled a lot and I've lived in a lot of places and Covid brought me back to this place. And I've got to say, I wasn't terribly happy about it when I first got back, but it is beautiful. And the people are something else. It's a different quality of life. And it's funny actually, Kate, because I came from the cultural sector and I've been asking people for quite some time, you know, who's the best leader in the cultural sector? Because it's kind of important, right? And nobody could put their fingers on somebody that they really thought were a create leader. So I sent you the, the CREATE framework. How did that make you feel? Made me feel like I was coming home into a leadership framework, which I've been working with for years. So, yeah, I think it's, it, it's really, really helpful in terms of, uh, and just so rings true with what I know is, you know, the need for human leadership and the need for leadership that just, brings our whole best selves into work every single day. So I, lo I loved it, actually. 
your best self and everybody else who you're working with is best self. It's so true. Okay, so story number one. Mm, so I'm going to take us back to Bristol where I worked. I had the pleasure of working for quite a long time. I've got a couple of Bristol stories. I had this incredible opportunity come my way and my team's way, which I think affected us all. Um, I mean, it was something that you could never forget. And we had the courage to grasp. I was the director of Bristol's Museums, Galleries and Archives, which is extensive, huge archive holdings, very important, uh, seven museums and galleries amazing collections, worldwide collections and buildings. And you know, in 2008-9, when this story is set, many regional museums had you know, not, not had the greatest amount of money. They'd really sort of been struggling a bit. And do you know, you might not believe this, but Bristol didn't wholeheartedly embrace its street art culture at that time. I know that's hard to believe now, but at that time it didn't. And that's an important. And I'm just going to, for those of you who are listening from outside of the UK, Bristol is the most alternative cultural street arty festival, incredible kind of alternative city possibly in the world, I would say. So, so do carry on. Sorry. Yeah. But, you know, then the council was still covering up street art. So anyway, there was a... One day I was in my office and one of my team came in and said, I don't believe the phone call I've just had. Banks's people have just rang me. And I was like, oh, someone's having a joke. You know, surely not, you know. But after we'd sort of unpacked what had just been said to him, we realised that actually we think it was true. Allegedly, they'd been trying to get hold of me, but I was so in meetings all the time, you know. Fortunately, they got through to Phil, this amazing guy on my team who'd realised that he needed to speak to them. And Bax's team had rung him to say, we want to work with you. We, you know, we've got this project in New York at the moment called the Pet Store. We'd love to bring it to Bristol Museums, which was, you know, when he knew Bristol Museums, it felt like a, a you know, it felt like a slight mismatch. Anyway. After a little bit of prodding around, we realised actually it really was Banksy and his people wanting to work with us. This is really unusual in 2008 because Banksy's interventions with institutions had all been covert at this point. He'd never collaborated directly with an institution before. So we were feeling like, why, why is he coming to us? You know, the stuffy museum up the hill so in, in his home city. Why is he coming to us? Anyway, I realised at this moment there was this massive, massive potential for us. And so did Phil, who I was speaking to. And we were got super excited. But, you know, just to unpack what this might mean, this was quite tricky for us, too, because we also knew that you'd have to work within Banksy's rules, which, you know, that's quite risky for a local authority museum service and uh, to work with a, you know, a covert street artist. And it went against my leadership style, do you know, because what he was asking us to do was to keep this quiet, to do it under the radar. So I couldn't I couldn't talk to people about it. I couldn't talk to my team about it. I couldn't talk to my managers about it. I couldn't talk to my politicians about it. 
I, I was the sort of leader who would, you know, very open, wanted to collaborate with people, involve people, you know, take them with you. But this was not what Banksy's uh, style was about. So for us, there was a choice we had to make about whether we were going to go wholeheartedly and put our, you know, embrace this amazing opportunity that he was offering us. And we also, I realised quite quickly, we had to trust him. Now, that's quite tough ask as well, because here is somebody with a reputation that he had. um, And he was saying, you know, we want to come into your museum and we want to play. And he really wanted to play because the more we allowed, the more he pushed and said, I want to do this, this, this and this, you know. So and I just felt it was it was just such a great opportunity. So the rules were set. We could only only a few of us could facilitate this. And I couldn't tell my politicians and my my big bosses or anything. I just had to get on with it. And this is quite tough when you run a big public institution. I mean, this is not a small thing because, you know, we have a program, we're open every day of the year, we're, you know, we're very visible. (laughs) And how do we do this? We literally had to shut the museum for 20, well, it was more than 24 hours, pretending that we were doing maintenance work. This never happened. You know, we were never shut other than Christmas Day. And we had to construct a story to say we were shutting. And what this allowed was Banksy and his people to come in. They were like, um, they'd been constructing all these amazing things outside and brought it in like a massive stage set overnight and completely transformed Bristol Museum. And Banksy versus Bristol Museum was born. And we opened in June 2009. Uh, I had to go on the Today programme at sort of, I don't know, it was like seven in the morning and announced that Banksy had taken over the museum uh, on national radio. And then the world media descended. Oh, my goodness. I've never seen anything like it. It was CNN. It was everything. Honestly, Uh, I, I had Gucci shoes on and I had to wear them for like eight or 10 hours while being interviewed on every single one. Channel. It was the most phenomenal thing. And of course, people came. It was in the top 10 world's most visited exhibitions of 2009. They queued around the block. The queuing became a thing in itself because it was such a phenomena. And what was in absolutely amazing, I worked, I worked at the front of, on the door a few days just to get a sense of who was coming to see this. And it was people that had never been to a museum before. They'd come from, you know, these were Bristolians as well as people from all over the country and all over the world because Banksy had such a following. And the fact that he'd come to the museum and was doing this incredibly smart project, it was, it was, and it was a brilliant project, by the way, it was just incredible. It really transformed us too, as in, we could not be affected, you know, as an institution, the staff, everyone that experienced it, you know, the, it was just the joy on people, my staff's faces when they realised what had happened and what we'd done. Um, it was phenomenal. Needless to say, the chief exec of the council at the time had to find out the same time as the world media did. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Oh my God. And so, a bit more of a moment, I can tell you. <laughs> yes. But they loved it. And my, my politicians loved it. And, you know, it, it really profoundly made such a difference in Bristol. After that, Banksy was embraced and street art was embraced. And it's gone from strength to strength. It has a huge urban art festival. You know, he's a hero now. But that was a moment of, you know, it, he trusted us. He came to us with something. He, he must have realised we were, you know, we had his chance of doing something. And we had to trust him. And I said, I gave him one rule. And the one rule was, don't, don't damage anything. <laughs> That's the curator in me, Kat. <laughs> sure. Sure. So, I, I mean, I... Because I, this was around the same time that I was at the UN and I was pushing a couple of levers quite hard and doing some things that were quite subversive for good reasons. There was nothing ever done that wasn't exactly for the purpose that we wanted to get to. But I'd love to know how you felt, you know, the night before the opening. Terrified. Terrified. (laughs) I mean, you know, God, it was terrifying. It was exhilarating and exciting, but it was also terrifying. I mean, God, who wouldn't be terrified? I was literally, it, it was exposing. But yeah. I knew it was the right thing to do, even if it felt that exposing. Because, you know, he was giving us a gift. Yeah. That's how I saw it. I saw him giving his home city a gift. And my job was to get out of the way and let him let him play. And he did an incredible job of you know, working within the whole narratives and stories of the museum in his playful, smart way. And people loved it. And it gave us a massive lease of life. So I'm proud of it. I'm really, really proud of it. And um, it was a moment for him. (laughs) Incredible. You know, and, you know, I spend so much time talking to leaders inside organisations who are terrified of letting go who are terrified of trusting people to do the right thing. And everything, it just resonates with me on so many levels. And the courage that that must have taken for you to go, I know this is the right thing to do. And I'm going to do it at whatever cost. And my team that worked with me, because obviously I had to you know, have a, a group of people around me who worked with me on it, were just so brilliant because they went with me and that's what it you need don't you and they kept me going because you have the, I had this sort of inner circle of people who were just fabulous so that's how we did it it was yeah <clears throat> funnily enough I was with Harley who was a previous guest on, on Humans Leading Humans um, in Chatsworth recently And one of the things you learn about Burning Man is that the opportunity to be part of a small tribe, to make a thing or to make a thing happen, you never lose your relationship with those people. That is, that's bonding. That's proper teamwork, isn't it? It is, definitely. So, yeah, 
And we um, there's a great book actually called Banksy, the Bristol Legend, if anyone's interesting, where a lot of the people who comment on this amazing phenomena that happened in 2009. And it's a really great insight into that moment where Banksy came, moved from being the covert artist to this art collaborator on an institutional scale. Absolutely. And the reason why I developed a girl crush on you, <clears throat> it's like, for God's sakes, oh my God, who is this woman? What an amazing thing to have done. Because how many people do you think would have said, can't do it? Oh, yeah. If I'd have asked permission, I wouldn't have got it. I mean, yeah. that not that a Bugsy phrase? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't seek yeah, permission. Ask for forgiveness, seek, not permission. Seek, exactly. And that, <laughs> that's a good motto, if it's good enough. I'd say so, yeah. If you want to get anything done. Okay, well, that was, you know, that's a story that I'm imagining that many people who are listening to this will carry on telling other people and hopefully it might motivate them to be a little bit more courageous and follow their gut. Story number two. So, yeah, I had the absolute pleasure of being an advisor to a very influential foundation in this country called the Paul Hamlin Foundation. And um, uh, I was one of four advisors nationally working on advising the foundation about their their arts programme. They're a grant giving organisation, but they're also an organisation that intervenes and supports organisations. And they are very motivated by social justice. Um, they're very thoughtful and intelligent and they invest in research and they invest in organisations in a very deep level. And I had the pleasure of being trusted by their chair, Jane Hamlin, and uh, James Lingwood, who was the arts committee chair at the time, to be one of their advisors. And it was an absolute pleasure. And on reflection, they gave me such a gift because they gave me this opportunity to work with them in a way which actually really affected me and helped me as a, as a leader. I was in my position at Bristol Museums at the time when James approached me and said, would you join as one of our advisors? And it gave me a space to work with them and with the other advisors who are also amazing people, and to really work into what was their agenda for, ch for change and support for the cultural sector. And the lasting legacy of my time there was a particular project called Our Museums. And this was a project I worked on for eight years which was, you know, that's how long I had this relationship with the foundation. And um, they wanted to work uh, on a project um, which took them into the space of organisational development and change in regional museums. And they said, what should that be? What does that look like? What does the sector need at this moment? So I had an incredible responsibility and opportunity to work with them on this. And what came out of it was a project which was about participation, active participation by uh, individuals in regional museums. And it was really groundbreaking and foundational. Um, we worked across the UK, 
so in Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland and England, with organisations who wanted to come on this journey with us to really invest in how you work with participants in museums in a really deep way. And I don't just mean the turning up and participating as in they come and see something or they take part in a workshop. I don't just, I don't mean that. It's beyond that. It's much deeper to get into how, how um, individuals really become important voices in their museums, in their regions. At the time when we started this, that wasn't sort of how people did things. I mean, there was some good practice, but it wasn't embedded into the way regional museum services work. So at the time, it was seen as quite sort of, you know, quite edgy. Um, we worked uh, with organisations and the money was all about really helping them to work deeply with their volunteers and their participants to really respect and to embed that in their organisations moving forward. And it was a slow burn because what we recognised was this was about lasting change, lasting significant change that from governance level right through the organisation. And some organisations managed to really make that work sort of better than others because they were all on a journey and we recognised they were all on the journey. Um, and it was fundamental and foundational to many organisations' work. Um, it was very much rooted in social innovation and that's what hit my buttons. It was for me, that was the heart of why I wanted to do this and is really at the heart of why I do what I do. Um, and the Paul Hamlin Foundation gave me the opportunity to shape that with them. And I am forever grateful for them for doing that for me. And I am so proud of what we achieved in those regional museums. Um, so it's still going on, that work continues, that doesn't stop. And it's, you know, and it's formative and, and um, so important. I mean, it's, again, you know, I think we must, I think we're sisters from another mother because <laughs> it's, it's something that I've, I've absolutely deeply believed in across all of the sectors I've worked in, you know, whether I'm working with a large corporation, doing employee voice programs, give people a voice because do you know what? If you can hear what they think, you can make things better depending on what you've heard, right? And then bring them together to co-create. Exactly. Because when people co-create together, they form tribes, they form bonds, beautiful things happen. Yeah. And, you know, the same with, you know, trying to get the UN to bind that a meta conference. Listeners, you won't know. So uh, I did a meta conference with the UN, which was 10,000 children in schools across the world, sending in tweets, peer moderated, asking these kids to help us to form an agenda. Terrifying. You know, nobody, we can't bring kids into the conversation. They may say something that's, say something that's what? Is there a wrong? Of course, there isn't a wrong. And if you trust people to do the right thing and ask them to be part of something, they are extraordinary. I want to ask you, though, you're working with, I don't know the Paul Hamlin Foundation well, but I get, I get the impression that they used to be quite trad. And so I'd love you to explain to me and the listeners, how did you take them on that journey through fear? Yeah, well, it was interesting because 
we did have to go through a journey internally as well. I mean, I had to tr- convince their trustees that this was the right way to go because, you know, they'd said, we want to invest in regional museums, tick. Um, and we want it to be something that's, you know, lasting, tick. But there was there's lots of way, different ways you could have done that, you know, from investing in collections-based projects, which are a little more traditional, to, you know, perhaps more traditional education projects. So when I said, it's got to be, it's got to be about this, it's got to be about participation, deep, deep participation, I did have to take them with me. And, it, you know, there were some moments on the way where that was, that was of course, questioned. Uh, and I was just had such a deep understanding that that's what was needed and I also could see across the Hamlin Foundation in their other work uh, around social justice that they really had a heart for it and it was how you bring together what I could see they had a heart for overall and my area of understanding which was the regional, regional museum landscape and saying, actually, there's there's a moment here where we need to bring that model into regional museums. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's going to be a quick fix. It isn't a quick fix, but this is critical to the ne- to what regional museums need next. Is that really deep engagement with its communities? Because it's the communities which you know, it's their voice, it's their history, it's their it's their agency which is required to make exactly. the next step you know so, and and it's and i think it's because of the way that you've always worked that you had the courage to do that because you know that actually opening things up is it's not terrifying at all it's i i think once you've done it you can't go back there you go because it's you just can't that's how i feel it's like it's like breathing Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, co-creation, listening to voices, bringing people into the conversation, making them feel that whatever it is you're doing is theirs. And especially when you're talking about galleries and museums, this is not an institution. This is our history. This is our culture. And if people don't feel that they're part of that, why would they come in? Especially now. Exactly. I mean, I think I think it is very born in my own personal history as as a first generation university girl um, from a family from Sheffield where I wasn't brought up with high culture. Um, But I uh, was taken to cultural activity as as a young person and it was available to me in my city of Sheffield, these amazing opportunities, whether it was theatre or it was museums and galleries or it was music. And I, I, it transformed me. And, um, and I think it's so ingrained in me that, that I, you know, that's, that's what drives me. And this is, you know, exactly the, the conversations, the work we've been doing, um, you know, and dear listeners, you know, you wouldn't know this, but, Sheffield, I don't know so much about South Yorkshire because I have, I've only just started really understanding the rest of the, the rest of South Yorkshire, but Sheffield has an incredible culture. It is and always has been very kind of about the people for the people. And, and that's what excites me now. 
this idea of actually if you start to embrace that rather than trying to close it down and top down, especially at this moment in time, you know, post-COVID, I just think there's so many, so much potential. Yeah. Before I carry on, I'm getting super excited about Sheffield. Story number three. There's story number three. So Arnold Feeney is an iconic Bristol institution. So back to Bristol. Um, it was set up by artists in the 1960s and um, as, a, as an artist-led project, but became uh, an iconic institution with an amazing building on the harbour side. And I became director in uh, there in 2014 when the organisation was at an inflection point. It was having difficulties in terms of its, it needed to find its identity again, and it had some financial issues. So I was asked by the chair at the time to come in and work with the organisation. I knew Bristol well from my time in the museum service. Um, and they brought me in at first as an interim to start to work with the team and the trustees at this point and the Arts Council. It was, I knew it was going to be a tough gig and the chair told me it'd be a tough gig um, uh, because this was all about taking the organisation through a lot of change. And, you know, organisations go through change curves, don't they? And I, this was on one of these change curves where I needed to work with the team, stakeholders and trustees to take it on the next stage of its journey. Um, and, you know, which is a privilege. I also knew that the only way to do that from my vast experience so far was to take my team with me. And um, so when when I was asked to do the job and I said to the trust the chair, I would do it. I asked him, I thought, I'm here's my moment to ask for something. <laughs> Not for me. I don't mean ask money for me. I mean for something. And I said to him, I know we have, I know things are difficult, but one thing I want you to say that I can do and to give me some resources to do is work with my management team, as in develop this bunch of people, give them something back, work with them. Because what I recognized was they were they were working so hard in this change process, they were pretty frazzled by it. They felt very exposed. You know, they were being it was a really, really tough time for them. Um, and here I was, new interim person coming in to, to help them. And God, you know, here they were. I needed them and they needed me. And I thought, how are we going to do this? And I brought in someone as a, from an organisational development background and also coaching to work with us as a management team and actually work with us as a bunch of humans and to just help us, hold us, give us some space. And what I realized was some of these individuals would come with me on the journey and would come with Arnold Feeney on the journey and others would, would decide they couldn't do that for whatever reasons, you know, and that's completely right and fine because that's what happens in difficult change processes. But I, I wanted to give them something. I wanted to give us something where we had a space where we could really talk and gain trust because it would need it. Because we were, I knew that the next year, 18 months, two years were going to be really, really tough. And, you know, it was really amazing. Do you know, they, they used to come into the room because I had this structure where we would make space every couple of weeks to do work together 
and it would have to be in a room together away from everything no interruptions and we had this we had this space in the building which was not occupied and we used it it became our workshop space and the woman I brought in to help facilitators was there and I, I made them come and they of course every single time they would say I haven't got time to be here and of course we could say that I didn't have time to be there you know I had an organization that I needed to but 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 we had to be there. It was, it saved our lives. And they did, you know, it was, it was, it was tough. And it would, but I really hope I gave something to that bunch of people. And some of them did come with me on the journey. And some of them didn't come with me on the journey. And it was fine. And, you know, I have a real heart for that bunch of people because you know, going through any change process on that level is really, really tough. And as a leader, I recognised all my team through that process. We were in it together and we had different roles to play. All were equally important. And we needed to really recognise the cost of that. And that stood me on good stead. Um, I hear that on so much with the people that I'm talking to and work with. We can't carve out time to do a 90 minute meeting once a week. There's no possible way. We're way too busy being busy to be able to carve out time to really bond and surface challenges and work on them together. Absolute nonsense. Those moments, you know, and interestingly, there was a piece of research that I read recently, which I um, can't remember the guy's name, a Parisian uh, PhD researcher, who Pereira, who asked 76 uh, huge global corporations to stop doing meetings. And what difference do you think it made? I should think it made a positive difference. <laughs> Every single one. Every single one, the fact that they weren't filling their diaries full of meeting after meeting. And actually, you know, back to your Banksy story, if you hadn't made time for that, imagine the opportunities you're missing. So being busy, being busy, being, no, every, you know, the, the, the trust, the autonomy, the increased communication, the increased connection, all of them were up exponentially. And so, you know, I really hear what you're saying about making the space to allow people to work together, to make something together, to make, it, make sure it feels like this. And you're also right. And, I, you know, this is something that I always point out to people. When your organisation changes, some people will leave because they won't like the new beast. And that's fine. You don't want those people in your organisation in the new shape. You want them to have the choice to say, this is no longer me. The, the work we did in that room also gave people the, the you know, we, we developed a shortcut hand between us because we, because we were working deeply with each other. And it meant that we also developed a much deeper respect for each other. Yes. And you so need that when you're going through difficult stuff because it's going to be hard and there's always going to be moments of conflict in that, always, always, because it's hard. But when you've got the trust and you've got the respect and you've got much more of an understanding of each other yeah. and why 
why someone's reacting and why someone's, you know, why that hurts someone's value system, why that, you know, you only get to that when you invest in it. And, um, and, and, and that was my, that was my gift to them, whether they see it or not, that was my gift to them is that I wanted us to travel that journey in a, a more aware, more respectful way, a more human way. So I love that story. It resonates on so many levels. And it reminds me of a story that Sasha Romanovich told in her episode of Humans Leading Humans, which again is about holding space, making sure that you've got 20% of your time, which is in your diary, in case things happen making sure that you've got property meetings and then skipping back a bit to Amy Edmondson and what she was saying, there is a, an assumption that if your organization is psychologically safe, people get kind of lazy. Everything's too nicey, nicey, nicey. No, no. Actually, when you're psychologically safe, you can have those difficult conversations and that's fine. And sometimes it feels uncomfortable, but you feel safe enough to do it. Resonates on so many levels, Kate. I've loved this conversation. I've, lo I've loved every conversation we've had, but this is a cracker. I love to hear your stories and I'm learning as you're talking. We've got to that point of the podcast. What would you like to call your episode of Humans Leading Humans? Oh my goodness. This is, this is like the most difficult bit of it, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I mean, I've talked a lot about making and holding space. And gifting as well. So I don't know if there's something we can craft from that. Um, I think making space is beautiful because it's something that so many leaders do not do. Yeah, hold it, holding and making space. There's something about holding space can be really not always comfortable because people want to fill space. So true. And you need to hold the edges of the space to allow something to enter. And I learn that more and more. So I think that's what I'd like it to be. Make and hold space. We good? We good. Thank Sounds you a so bit much, like Elon um... Musk though, doesn't it? Making and holding space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Make and hold don't necessarily go to. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> Fantastic. I've loved this session. Thank you so much for your time and your energy and your expertise, Kate. Oh, and it's a pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. And, you know, we'll look forward to get again to seeing you with a glass of wine soon. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God, that was brilliant, Kate. Um, now, that's what I call leadership. So many things resonated with me um, around trusting people to do the right thing, around co-creating with stakeholders, around the courage that it took um, to take those risks, that first one especially. I am, I'm, you inspire me, Kate. The courage that it took for you to trust Banksy and his crew to trust your instinct, to hide what was going on, and taking that informed risk within a regional authority is just awesome, awesome. And, and the fact that you were courageous enough 
to take that informed risk. That changed the regional authority. That changed the city. And believe me, dear listeners, Bristol changed so much after that phenomenal exhibition that brought the eyes of the world to Bristol. So if you're working inside a super traditional risk averse organization and you think that you can't change it, it's not true. You can change it. You can change it by taking informed risks, by asking forgiveness, not permission, by trusting people to do the right thing. And don't get caught up in this busy, being busy, tied. Even though it doesn't feel like it, there is always time to stop and hold space. That space for collaboration, that time to connect, that development time, freeze time. I've had two conversations just over this week where people have said, we're just so busy. We're so busy. We can't start thinking about development. We haven't got time. Find time, make space, and then hold space. Allow people to create bonds, to spend time together, to understand each other, to find solutions to the things that are keeping all that space so full of busy being busy. Just try it. I promise you, you will not look back because you won't be able to because you won't be able to go back to doing things the other way, because do you know what? This style of leadership is common sense. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. If you are a senior marketing leader, and you need the know-how and the networks to succeed and you're not already a member of that brilliant tribe, jump over to their website and become part of the tribe. I would absolutely 100% recommend it. There's some amazing people and some inspiration in there that you don't want to be missing. Thank you to the fantastic Superterrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the Create framework and how we support companies by building cultures of connection and collaboration and unleashing the problem-solving potential of humans. If you loved this episode, and I certainly did, please pass it on to your friends, share it on social, give it to your friends that you think might need a shot of inspiration or motivation or energization. Thank you so much for joining me. If there's a senior leader you'd like me to interview, don't forget, mail me, cats at wearebeep.com. Please subscribe. The links are in the note. Be inspired. Be imaginal. Be more human. And I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.